I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we celebrate being human for its own sake and retrieve some of the painstakingly evolved social mechanisms for establishing rapport, solidarity, and the collective power that comes along with them. You are not alone. Playing for Team Human today, writer and editor Aaron Gell. Can we generate the kind of empathy for one another and the sense that we're going through something together that is actually going to require to maintain our humanity? Aaron will be showing us how to see and describe the other as human. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Oh, my God, everybody's freaking out that the Mueller investigation report came out with no indictment and no proof of collusion. Oh, my God, it can't be true. It can't have happened. And as if to make matters worse, Trump and his spokespeople, they're already magnifying the extent of their victory, right? It's not enough that Mueller appears to have concluded there's not enough evidence to prove Trump's team colluded. No, now Trump and his press secretary and the subservient Republican Party, now they're claiming the report fully exonerates the president, even though the investigation did not exonerate him and kind of leaves open the question of the obstruction of justice. And it's these exaggerations that feel almost like a bit of calculated insult to injury. It reminds me of when Sean Spicer was lying about the size of the crowd at Trump's inauguration. I mean, wasn't it enough that he won the friggin' presidency? Why lie about the size of the crowd? Why lie about the details when you've won the war? 
And I think the reason they do that is because it makes the Democrats even crazier. I mean, it distracts them from reality and focuses them instead on these phantom menaces. I mean, I get it. I mean, I was traumatized, too, by the Trump election on, on election night. And, and I was as upset as anyone that America seemed to want a fascist game show host as its president. But right afterwards, even in a monologue for this show, I started arguing about the Trump opportunity, that we have to get over that loss, stop trying to rationalize it or justify that it was stolen through some Russian collusion, whatever, and spend the next four years doing something other than trying to amplify Trump's negatives, which would only backfire. But Democrats, they just insisted on using all of Trump's lying as this excuse to pretend his presidency was also somehow false. I remember the few contexts I have in the Democratic establishment. All they cared about was increasing Trump's negatives one way or the other. And what they didn't realize was that Trump is really the only star of this reality show that we're in. So the harder he gets attacked, the more the audience will have empathy for him. We love contemptible characters, Richard III, Tony Soprano. As long as they're under attack, we will be on their side. So just as Trump's administration became something of this weird cult where everybody's willing to lie or do outlandish things for him in order to get his approval, I feel like the anti-Trump movement became something of a cult of conspiracy psychosis. The idea that anybody could try to work with him or even against him to get something done, well, that was all surrendered to this wild hope that someone would uncover his illegitimacy, right? He's not our real father, right? So then in comes Robert Mueller, you know, our knight on a white horse, whose quiet authority gave all of us Democrats this sort of dignified parent onto whom we could transfer all of that usurped daddy authority. And yeah, he uncovered a lot of bad stuff about the Russians and some corruption in Trump's campaign, but he couldn't quite put things together as neatly as a criminal case would require. And then all the conspiracy theorists, which is what the Democrats have amounted to, all the conspiracy theorists, they can't help but keep going. Right? Wait a minute, there's got to be something. They're going to parse these words on NPR. I hear them parsing the word established from the summary statement, hoping that just because Mueller can't establish collusion doesn't mean it isn't there. And then there's my Twitter feed, which is still reading like, like Alex Jones with Kirsten Gillibrand. He, she's pleading, sign the petition now to stop the Trump administration from burying the truth. And I'm sorry, this is not a path to victory in 2020. It's not even a path for incremental progress in the here and now. Now, we've got to use this moment, this Mueller investigation failure, as an opportunity to reset, right? We have to reset the progressive agenda to something other than undermining Trump's legitimacy or uncovering his treasonous acts. I mean, he's the one who said he can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and pay no political price. That should have been a big, big hint. It's time for 
everybody from from all sides from from Trump's side to stop going crazy about you now prosecuting the people who who were calling him treasonous to the the democratic candidates and progressives like you know Rachel Maddow and the New York Times everyone's got to stop and start focusing on real even existential issues that have been largely ignored in this forensics reality show that we've been playing that's been masquerading as current events for the last two years. We're busy playing our own version of reality TV while the planet dies, poverty grows, immigrants suffer, and children everywhere are wondering why the adults are refusing to act like grown-ups. Come on, not everything is about Trump, unless we insist that it is. I'm Fred Turner, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Amy Herzog, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lana, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jacinta Gonzalez, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Medium Editor Aaron Gell. If you want to support this show and get special access to some fun stuff, including signed copies of Team Human, come to teamhuman.fm and click on support. We could use it. I'm embarrassed to admit how much I fall into the trap of seeing other people in relationship to me and my needs rather than whoever they really are. And that's what happened with our guest today, Aaron Gell, who has been my editor for magazine pieces over the last 20 years in everything from W to Radar and Hemispheres, the airline magazine and the New York Observer and now Medium. But it wasn't until last year when I happened upon a giant like 6,000 word piece he wrote for Medium about a sort of a sex cult gathering that I realized he's also an astoundingly talented journalist in his own right, something between a, a Joan Didion essayist and a Hunter S. Thompson gonzo journalist. And what makes Aaron's work so very compelling, to me right now anyway, is that he seems to be able to find the humanity in almost any character, from a psycho killer to a survivalist militia member. And yes, Aaron Gell is nicer than I am, but it's more than that. He can see and express a layer of the human experience that most of us miss. And I'm delighted to be able to call him my friend. All right, Aaron Gell, he's an editor at Medium, an instructor of journalism at NYU's prison education program. You've been an editor at, at I mean, these are the places I know you from, uh, uh, Radar, uh, Hemispheres, New York Observer, Maxim, which is around when we lost touch, and then... <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know exactly why. And then uh, I should have reached out. And then uh, Medium, where now we're 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 back back in in art and business together. Um, there's a bunch of things I want to talk about, but first, you know, because it's the area of your life I don't really know about, except for it being the time when you're not available to me. Um, what does it mean to be an instructor of journalism in NYU's prison education program? How did that happen? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, uh, I started about two years ago as a volunteer. I was able to get hooked up with NYU, and they have a program at Wallkill Correctional Facility upstate. And so I was uh, going up there once a week or so, um, helping out, just 
with uh, writing, tutoring, and that sort of thing. Um, and eventually, I suggested um, teaching an actual course in journalism because they are offering an associate's degree to the students, and they went for it, uh, which was great because I have not taught higher education before. So mm. I did that for a semester, and we were able to, you know, the students did really amazing work. And once I realized what they were capable of, I reached out to the NYU student newspaper, which is the Washington Square News, sort of roped them into it and said, well, we'd like to contribute stories to the paper. And the students there were very excited. So I've continued uh, working with a small group of student journalists up at Wallkill. They write um, stories. I edit them and send them off to the uh, Washington Square News. And, and people can actually see all that stuff online if they Google Wallkill Journal. All those pieces are online, and it's been great. I mean, just uh, the students there are amazing people and doing really good work. It's interesting, or it sounds challenging from two perspectives. One, I mean, you're a husband and a father and a freelancer trying to survive in Brooklyn, New York. And at the same time, you decide you have enough time and energy to volunteer teaching in a prison? Um, well, the dirty secret there of privilege is that I made one really smart decision in something like 1999, which is I bought uh, a home in Brooklyn. And as a result of that, now have like a ton of equity and sort of realized at a certain point around this time that um, that was valuable and that mm. that as a result of that i should not feel that i was living in a world of scarcity but that actually if i really really got into trouble i could sell my house and move somewhere and not have to worry about working and that sort of empowered me a little bit to make different kinds of decisions about what i wanted to do with my time it's an interesting thing i mean and it goes i mean to that you know piece we worked on together for for medium about you know the difference between universal basic income and universal basic assets. That once you have an asset, you know there's a very different sort of safety net under you than just having a, a livable salary. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think around that time, I decided I had taken some jobs that, in order to you know support myself and my family, that I wasn't really happy doing. Realized I was lucky to be able to get those jobs, but maybe there had to be another way to approach things if I wanted to feel better about how I was spending my time on the planet. And so I, you know, I got into all of those blogs about how to live with nothing uh -huh. and read all that stuff and tried to figure out like, well, how could I make half my salary and survive? Once you get obsessive about it, it's not that hard to do. At least it wasn't that hard for me to do in my situation. So that was a big part of it is I sort of quit going out to dinner. I quit even taking the subway. I rode my bike, ride my bike around and just tried to figure out ways. I guess it occurred to me that every dollar I was spending, I had to earn and I didn't always like the way I had to earn it. So right. that all those things sort of came together at the same time. And then, you know, once I was focusing on the kind of work I felt really uh, good about, it did turn out that 
there was plenty of it out there for me. So I got lucky there too. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, the, the peak of the, the, of the, uh, the bad side, if you will, or the, the peak of the sort of being with the New York moneyed classes and the New York nightlife was probably when you were, uh, 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 the editor of New York Observer. Yeah. That sounds like the apogee of it. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I certainly got a taste of, of that sort of, I don't know if I would call it glamour, but there was a certain, certain glamour to journalism at that time and, and maybe even more so before in my career. You know, I started in magazines. There was a very limited amount of space. They had to make tougher choices. And so surviving in that world, I mean, especially when I was a freelance writer, you know, I that determined what I was focusing on. It meant that most of my attention was on celebrity profiles. I did a million celebrity profiles. But I do think, you know, doing those celebrity profiles, it was kind of a, a helpful training for what I'm doing now because it forces you to try to make an interesting portrait of a person, but also be thoughtful and empathetic because if you're not if you're not kind you're not going to work because the publicist will make sure you're not you're not hired again to to talk to one of their you know one of their clients but i don't think that the kindness that you exhibit in your long form writing is is purely uh, uh reciprocal altruism i mean i think it's 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 also uh a philosophy. And that's sort of what I wanted to get into. This idea or this way you have of kind of treating subjects like human beings. In some ways, that struck me. That's almost like the theme of this whole podcast adventure. It's uh, it's part of the challenge is how do we look at, you know, and that's when I, I used to call myself kind of a Trump whisperer. How do we look at things that for the majority of my audience might look completely inhuman or illogical or wrong and at least say, this was a human who did this. So, and we have to understand it rather than just feign its incomprehensibility. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's so important um, in order to understand ourselves. I think we have to like look at the extremes sometimes and be willing to understand what drives somebody to to the extremes and and try to process it because I do think it tells us something about ourselves and yeah I mean one of the first stories I think where you know I was trying out this approach was in 2006 I read about these two girls 13 year old um, sisters who Lamb and Lynx Gady who uh, had grown up in a white nationalist family. And they had their own band. And the band is called Prussian Blue, which is uh, the name of uh, a chemical that was used in the gas chambers or something like that. And they had gotten a lot of attention in the, you know, on the internet and stuff like that. The pictures of them wearing these Hitler t-shirts. So I just decided it would be interesting to actually meet them and, and hang out. And so you know, I reached out to their mother, who is like a ardent white nationalist, you know, neo-Nazi, and she was interested in talking. And so I went out to their home in Bakersfield and hung out with their family for a day or so, then watched the girls recording their new record and all that sort of thing. And what 
I, I really did like, you know, I'm Jewish. I went out there knowing that, um, in effect, like, you know, the girls have been taught everything terrible, uh, you could possibly imagine about people like me and their mother certainly holds those beliefs. She was part of Stormfront and all, all those Nazi websites and organizations. And, you know, I just went out there trying to openly listen to them and try to wrap my head around what they were thinking. And there was a point during that interview, I sort of write about it at the end of the piece where I sort of go, well, these girls are 13 years old. You know, they may actually rebel when they're teenagers or when they're 18, who knows what they're going to think. And one, you know, nice part of that experience, not all of it was nice, but one nice part of that experience was that afterwards, they and their mother all said that I had given given them the most fair treatment of any journalist that they'd spoken to. And I thought it really did. If they have anti-Semitic views, I thought it was useful for me to show them as a, a Jewish journalist that I could be fair. And so I was glad that they saw it that way. But also years later, mm-hmm. um, a friend of mine who knew about that piece asked me to go check in with them again. And so I did reach out to them when they were in their probably early 20s. And um, it was, you know, what I suspected would happen actually had happened. And it was very validating that they had turned away from white nationalism. They were dating men that were not white. They And they had like really, really fascinating perspective on the experience that they'd had. And so, I don't know, I, I just felt like that really gave me the sense that being willing to listen, even when you don't really want to, it can not only you'll learn things that you wouldn't expect, but also um, it might even change how people speak. I think you find that on the internet all the time that like when we actually, instead of engaging in combat, we sit down and listen. Um, People tend to moderate their views a little bit. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they can learn. It's not as much as saying there's fine people on both sides. Not quite. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I don't, I don't think her, their mother ever changed her point of view. And so who knows, um, who knows what she thinks now. Um, I wouldn't say that I want to spend all my time with them, you know, but I think it, it was, it was certainly like, for me, it, it definitely validated the idea that it's worth it to just, if you can, when you can just try to listen, try to be empathetic, even though the impulse might be to fight back you know, as a journalist, you have a lot of power. So in the end, it wasn't necessary for me to engage them, um, you know, in a negative way. I I was able to shape the story how I wanted. So in that sense, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to listen to somebody because in the end, you you have the power to tell the story how you want. Right. I mean, and the the other way of looking at, at what you're doing is basically, and I want to talk about some of these other pieces, you're, you're, trying very consciously and and explicitly and purposefully to remain aware of your own humanity when you're embedding yourself in a world and not necessarily in the Hunter S. Thompson uh, uh, gonzo style, although there is some gonzo in it, but it's more about not using, you know, journalistic or scientific distance as this excuse to kind of fake objectivity or worse to deploy cynicism about something you know that you are you are 
in whatever world that you're in, you are one of the sinners, maybe worse <laughs> than they are. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's in, it's an interesting... Well, I guess it's an interesting read on what you're writing. But, you know, take a piece like... Um, you did a piece recently on Medium called How to Survive a Midlife Crisis, Drugs, Dance, Music, and Free Love. And it was basically a story where, as uh, you, I'll quote you here, I ditched my wife and kids to party in the woods with 256 positive millennials. So <laughs> at this sort of... It's a sort of three-day dance music festival come new age spiritual retreat. And that you were there, you were ready to critique it, but you were also kind of open to the personal transformation that might uh, that might come about. So, you know, it, I mean, setting the stage, it's kind of like a, a mini Burning Man, but for uh, people perhaps to, to, to get it on and to do psychedelics and have sex and stuff. Right, right. Well, I mean, I have to admit, that, you know, when I first thought about doing this piece, it really was like, wow, this sounds like a fun party. <laughs> um, you know, I had just heard that there were these people that were kind of influenced by Burning Man and they were having exclusive parties and there was tons of drugs and, and polyamory and all kinds of dance music. And I just thought like, wow, you know, I'm getting old, but that sounds kind of fun. And one of the nice things about doing this kind of job is that sometimes you can get paid to go to a crazy party and i just you know that was really at at root like the impulse i mean and so i think you know i i'm i'm lucky to be able to um to follow that kind of you know muse and um, did you talk with your wife before you left that it's like to get permission to like be in an orgy or something if it happened uh yeah. <laughs> we we chatted about it a little bit. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know what I was gonna find and so I didn't go into a lot of detail. There was no written contract or anything <laughs> like that. But I did, yeah, I I talked about it a little bit. But I did find, you know, as with a lot of these stories, it wasn't exactly what I expected and even more so in order to do that kind of story, what I imagined I would do is kind of, you know, since this is sort of a new age spiritual scene, there's a lot of kind of goofy stuff. The sort of model for this kind of piece, I think, is Joan Didion, you know, writing about the hippie scene in San Francisco, slouching toward Bethlehem. And that that story is kind of, to me, the model I hoped to follow. Obviously, I, I doubt I would have pulled off anything nearly as good, but where you kind of just observe, you sort of gently mock the people, you know, it's typical for a trend story, um, where you just take down as many details as you can, you let people sort of spout off, you know, new age jargon or talking elliptically on drugs and that kind of thing. And you just sort of tell the story in a way that tends to be a little bit mocking. Right. I mean, and that was the thing. And you you wrote about the way in which, I mean, because you're an experienced writer and editor, the way in which those of us in this trade can can and here's a quote for you can uh, can be uh, offering their subjects up on the altar of parody and leaving them bleeding out in a quivering heap while allowing the assassin an airtight alibi. The trick is that you show, don't tell. 
So you just select, cherry pick the details that make these people look uh, uh, as insane as possible. Right. I mean, I, I didn't want it to be, you know, I didn't expect to write like a really negative takedown, but I thought I could write sort of like a gentle gentle right parody. but you didn't but you you if anything the thing that happened to you in this in this experience is that they they drew out of you a kind of a humanity that made you want to treat them uh with with love and respect yeah exactly i mean i i've never been to burning man but i figured it would be a similar thing and it, it really was but I think what what made it hard to follow the plan i originally had in mind is first of all they were hugging me nonstop. So the minute I got there, people were just greeting me with incredibly welcoming hugs and were so happy to have you. And I thought like, okay, well, this is kind of silly. But over time, you know, all those hugs actually had an impact on me. And I did start to feel like, gosh, I can't, I can't betray these people. Like they're <laughs> so open to a journalist coming into this private world where they're letting down their guard to such an extent, and they're doing it by choice that it just didn't feel right. So there was that. And I think also, I would say the drugs made a big difference. You know, I decided that I was going to essentially partake of whatever I was offered and experience the party the way it was intended. And so taking psychedelics and doing journalism at the same time, it becomes really, really hard to separate yourself from other people. You feel that sense of community and oneness. I mean, it sort of comes with the psychedelic experience. And I think that played a really big role in how the piece. Right. And if you're, if you're high on mushrooms or whatever, and you're around a campfire with these people and feeling bonded to them. And then, you know, the leader guy, uh, uh, I forgot his name, like Lev or something, you know, and he says to you, I feel like you're going to do something great. You know, I know we can trust you and that he's not saying it or maybe he is, but but it doesn't seem to you anyway, like he's saying it in a manipulative way. But I know we can trust you. I mean, how can you betray someone who's tripping with you saying, I know I can trust you? How could you go home and then, you know, take them apart? Right, right. I mean, you can't. And I also I also feel like the story I might have had in mind was not that interesting of a story when you come down to it, you know, finding a, a weird subculture and writing a snarky piece about it. It's been done. It can be very entertaining. It can be fun to do, but it's not really going to do much for the world. And, you know, I wanted to try to look at what the experience was like, why these people were had come together in this way to build this community and sort of dance their asses off for three days in the woods and you know what it all meant and it just seemed more interesting to really try to look at that and also its impact on me than to kind of do this sort of distanced uh version right and then what you end up doing is sharing uh and you do this in all your work but you ended up sharing this sort of moment to moment honest experience that you're having as as a form of journalism and not as as kind of jokey satiric gonzo over the top but as this is what this is what it's like if you could read this it's from i mean i'll set it up it's other than than dancing and partying and sexing or whatever's happening they do some organized sort of exercises and meditations and practices together and this is one of them 
Next, he told us to find someone we didn't know and sit facing one another. My partner was Nanette. She appeared to be in her 30s and had a friendly face and a big smile and bangs, and she wore her hair up in a high ponytail. We settled in opposite each other. Then, as instructed, we proceeded to gaze silently into one another's eyes and keep gazing long past the point of discomfort, past the giggles, past the careful study of one another's features. Nanette wears a lot of mascara. Past the terrifying moment when we knew we'd been seen in all our innocence and childlike fear and deep existential sadness. Past the next round of giggles and even past the boredom and the moment when we silently agreed, we got this, you and me, we're killing this bullshit exercise. It was probably a, a minute, two minutes tops. I mean, <laughs> there's a good punchline because it seems like a it's like a lifetime relationship that's happened in this moment. I mean, it's it's obviously it's a part of it's the time compression or expansion of of tripping or drugs or whatever. But yeah, I really enjoyed writing that and being able to sort of focus on, you know, once I got home, what was that experience about? And the moment by moment, um, things that flash through your head when you're in this really awkward exercise where you, this is a person I never spoke to before. It's just turned to the person next to you and we, we found each other. What is it like to literally just gaze into this person's eyes? It's kind of goofy and annoying and you sort of wish you didn't have to um, be doing this, but actually um, as I broke it down, like the experience was actually very, kind of powerful. And I think even that little experience, that couple minutes that we had, you know, over the rest of the weekend, like we were friends after that. It was really clear that we had had some kind of meaningful bond in that time. And the the other thing that happens in this in this piece is it moves from a piece about them to kind of a piece about you and self-discovery. And you we we find out, you know, and you say, I don't, I don't think I don't even think I understood until I arrived how stressed out I'd been, how focused on work, how fearful, how desperate for control, how fundamentally unhappy, despite having by any standard a perfectly good life. And that's something that hit home for me. And I think a lot of readers, a lot of us, I mean, we're, we are, just if we're eating and have computers in America, we have a privileged existence. Yet so many of us are fundamentally unhappy and confused and 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 uh, relatively uh, incapable of just embracing and celebrating how good we have it it's almost this weird yeah. universal experience you know along with this idea now that you've sneaked into this place and you're going to be found out in some ways is another universal experience that wherever you are you know whether I'm teaching at Queens oh no you know they're going to find out I'm not a real academic I'm a fake or you know you're whatever we're doing that we've that somehow we've snuck in we've made it under the wire and we're going to get found out um, there's a lot of power in a way or, or what it, maybe the way to put it is it feels very empowering to be able to own that kind of uh you know embarrassing moment and write about it. And I know we, we all know that everybody has these kind of doubts, this, this self-doubt and these humili humiliating things that we go through. Um, and so given that everybody has that experience, it actually isn't so bad to go ahead and share it. I mean, I don't have a brand to defend, you know, I don't think anybody would be shocked. Um, right. 
that I have these vulnerabilities. So in that sense, there's a certain power there that, you know, I can go ahead and just say it. Um, Certainly there are probably things I wouldn't put in print, but there are a lot of things I would. And it is, you know, it really does touch a lot of people because I do think we all have these experiences and seeing somebody who's willing to go ahead and write about it is always, you know, it's always really powerful for the reader. So I don't know. I'm happy to do that. I sort of feel like you're taking one for the team when you have that moment where you can go ahead and be really open and authentic and honest. um, You know, it does, it does ennoble everybody. Ideally anyway. For most readers or for me as a reader, this, this, piece on this, you know, new age sex cult thing was largely about whether or not you were going to have sex with someone in this thing. I mean, it was kind of like the, uh, the prize you were kind of holding out was the tension of whether or not it's sort of like whether or not Sam and uh, Diane are going to have sex on cheers. You know, it was, I guess you and the, you and the woman, you and the woman from, uh, uh, the mirror exercise were thinking, is this going to happen? And you do something really interesting narratively is you basically you go to the you you go to the end of the piece. You start talking about your conversation on the ride home as if to say, no, it didn't happen. And you kind of you kind of put to bed the original allure of the piece once and for all, saying, No, it didn't happen, but and sex is not going to happen in the rest of this piece, but wait, there's more. Do you know what I mean? It was as if you were saying, mm-hmm. "There's, but there's something else that you, reader, need to discover about these people and what I experienced. And you're only going to be able to discover it if you stop worrying about whether or not I had sex on this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I, um, I hope it's not a bait and switch. Um to some extent, it was a bait and switch for me, though. Right. And so the experience was, yeah, in the back of my mind, sure, I am a married guy, but like, yeah, in the back of my mind, like, I don't know, maybe um, something would happen. I have no idea how I would have written that article. In some ways, I'm probably lucky that it didn't happen. <laughs> but, um, but what I found, you know, with this community of people um, was that what they were doing, you know, sex was a part of what what can happen at this party but it wasn't really the point and the more time i spent there the more it became clear how kind of beside the point it really was and that there was something much deeper that they were seeking and that brought them together and and in fact you know a number of people said this is the hardest place you know people would confide in me this is the hardest place to pick up somebody because if you mess up or if it's you choose the wrong person and they're not interested, everybody knows about it and you feel like you you betrayed the whole community. So it does happen, but it's it's certainly not like a free for all as I expected. And and they value their community so much more than they value the opportunities to, you know, hook up. And that that I found actually really powerful. Right. I mean, so it ends up being kind of an article. about Here's an article about sex, a sex cult that turns out not to really be a sex cult. And we should be more concerned with the human beings in the story. Or, you know, and finally, the last story I want to talk talk about is this one you wrote called Love is a Battlefield. Um, that was just a couple of weeks ago about the uh, this sort of hardcore military role players who meet 
up regularly to reenact, or I guess it's not re, not a military reenactment, but a pre-enactment of the Second <laughs> Civil War, and how you put, you know, you got an AR-15 and went into this battle. I mean, that's bizarre. That's that's scary for me. Right. Well, they they're also not using real guns. They're airsoft guns, which fire these uh, plastic coated BBs. Those still hurt. They look just like real guns. Um, it does hurt. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you. I definitely saw some people with missing teeth and stuff like that, and and they require you to wear eye protection. You feel it, um, but it, it, it's not. It's not really dangerous. But the thing that was weird to me about this, and again, I mean, without going in it, in it person by person, again, there's all these guys, you know, the kind of people that that most of us little soft New Yorkers only see on, you know, cops or something or some reality show. You're, you know, shoulder to shoulder with these guys, with with people that we would imagine were in the uh, protesting the the removal of of, you know. Southern military heroes statues from the front of, of of town halls, and you know, not just breaking bread with them and fighting with them and being on their side, but fighting a war that many of us are afraid might actually happen. Like if the Democrats go right. go, I was going to say go nuts, but if the if the Democrats go for broke next year and like impeach Trump or something. I could see something like this happening. I could see people taking up arms and saying no. I could see him saying no. I'm not leaving the White House. That was not legal. And it getting surrounded by a whole bunch of guys in military fatigue saying, you know, we're going to protect our president. And then, shoot, what happens? I mean, did you feel like, I mean, it couldn't help but make you wonder if there's a civil war in America's future. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that the story seems so interesting, once I stumbled on this subculture of LARPers, live action role players who are doing what they call milsim, uh, military simulation games, and found one outfit that was not just sort of doing, oh, it's like reenacting Cold War type battles or things like that, but they were actually... They had created this narrative, um, almost you know, a spec fiction narrative of what would happen if um, several states seceded and the federal government went in with troops and you know, sort of like Red Dawn or something. You know, um, everyday people had to fight for their rights and that sort of thing. And they've been each of their events, and they take place once a month or so in different places. Um, each one is like another chapter in this unfolding game, and they update the narrative based on what happened. Um, and I did think, you know, well, this sounds like these guys are like militia guys or something, and they're kind of practicing or fantasizing about what's going to happen when it all goes down and there's uh, armed conflict um, in America. And certainly there are a lot of people fantasizing about that and speculating about it on the news. Um, and and again, it's it's a very similar story in that what I expected to find and what I found were so different. And I think it's one of the, it's one of the real joys of being a journalist sometimes is proving yourself wrong. Mm. You actually get to be curious about something and form a hypothesis. And much of the time, you know, you're wrong. And especially if you are open to what's really going on and you don't have you don't have a preconception and you have an editor that's not demanding that you write exactly what you said you were going to write, um, which is also really important. Um, 
that you can you can go back to your editor and say, you know what, this is exactly the opposite of what I thought I was going to find. I want to write it anyway. And so I'm lucky to have that. But in both cases, you know, I did find that these are people that have figured out a way to create a community to actually, it's a response to the the alienation of the world that we're living in and that it has caused all these, you know, divisive um, issues and so on. And what, what these guys were doing, the more I, you know, I spent a day pretty much asking everybody I could find, like, what do you think about politics? And do you think, you know, is this going to happen right. for real? And I, I sort of was disappointed at a certain point, you know, um, to find that everybody said to me, you know, we're just a bunch of guys that like to like run around and pretend we're like little kids shooting each other. Like we're just having fun. And it, it suddenly this, this moment happened where I realized like, okay, the story I thought I was writing is not going to be the story. Um, and I started really listening to them and trying to understand what it was they were doing. And it seemed to me that really, in some ways, they had created an escape from the kind of like violence. And, you know, despite the fact that they're shooting guns at each other, um, they were actually getting away from the real divisiveness and, you know, anger that we see on Facebook and Twitter and that sort of thing and had created like a little bubble. And, you know, I found that really, once I understood what was happening, um, you know, I appreciated it so much more. Um, and I was kind of happy to find a different, you know, a different story. I know there are militias out there. There are certainly people that do want to spark a second civil war and they're actively working to do it and so on. That's really terrifying. Um, but it's nice to see at least to meet these guys who were actually trying to do something really different. Do you, do you feel that my sense, and maybe it's just cause I'm in, I found medium and now I'm, I'm getting paid for writing again after a long time or it's been hard to do, but do you feel that there's a, 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 a renaissance in kind of long form journalism and real storytelling journalism that people Maybe because things have gotten so, you know, so tweeted, so disconnected, so alienated that people are kind of turning to writing again, the way that they're turning to, you know, organic food or long walks, you know, or or, or mindfulness. <laughs> that they realize that, oh no, I can connect with people and events and feelings through this form in a way that's that's really nourishing. Uh, I mean, do you do you feel that that people are responding to this? That there's more place to do it now. I don't. I don't know if it's changed. I do think one thing that's happened is that we are more confused than we used to be, and we're turning towards long form narrative to help explain things that maybe you're never going to quite understand if you're following the news minute by minute on Twitter and so on. And there is, you know, an information overload, and we all experience it all the time. Um, and so I do think maybe, you know, I think there's always been, I mean, for years, really great long form journalism. Um, the difference might be that it feels more necessary mm. now, I think, you know, because it used to be if you just got your news from a weekly news magazine at the end of the week, you would, you would have a pretty good sort of scent of way of processing what had gone on that week. Um, I don't think we have that anymore because we're so plugged into social media and so on. 
And so it does become much more important to have writers that are trying to kind of step back from that day-to-day chaos and try to put the pieces together and say, well, what did we just go through? What are we experiencing? You know, I hope I'm doing that to some extent. Um, I'd love to be doing it more because I think we really need it. Yeah. And you know, and I, I, I've always resisted narrative because it always feels like storytelling is too pat or when you have to fit something into a beginning and middle and an end or crisis climax and resolution that it, it kind of predetermines a whole lot about, about a story. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, story is a terrific discipline through which to try to make sense of something. How does this, what is the story here is almost an appropriate question to ask, particularly in moments where we're this, 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 this disconnected and disoriented. Yeah. I mean, I think story is how people process the world. We're going to create narratives, whether we know we're doing it or not. And so to the extent that we might resist it, I don't know that we're really going to get away with simply looking at the facts without any shape. Our brains are sort of wired to shape shape things into pictures. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to avoid it. So in that case, the question is maybe how can you do it in a way that's true? I mean, you know, you and I could have both gone to the same party and obviously we would have written very different articles about it. So there's no inherent truth there that I've captured that you or that you would have captured, but I think you aim for it. At least the truth of my experience as much as possible. I tried to get that on paper, but also to be mindful of the fact that people are looking for a story and that's the only way they're going to like take away any message as if the story meant something. So I guess what we're talking about is, is, you know, creating alternatives to the distracted, uh, solipsistic reality in which so many people are living. I mean, you were talking to me earlier about the, uh, you know, the experience of walking down the street in New York now is of watching everybody else involved in their, in their smartphone. And almost nobody looking up. Yeah, it's like we, I felt like when I moved to New York, I was making some kind of deal with everybody else. Like, hey, we're all moving to this giant city and we're going to occupy this space together. And and that's a project. I mean, we never really said it out loud that way, but in some ways it was. We're going to like build a city together. And I do feel like one of the reasons that maybe New York doesn't feel like that interesting of a place to live anymore is because a number of people have just sort of quietly opted out of that project. I don't think they realized it was happening. But it does make me feel more and more like at least, you know, any way that we can cultivate empathy with other people, we really need to be doing it. Um, Because, you know, my way, one of the ways I do it is journalism. That's just because it's what I... um, what I do. And because it seems like it's an effective tool for that, um, it can be. But when you think about what, what we're all going to go through as a species or, you know, all living things on this planet, I mean, we really are facing a biblical threat and not just, you know, rising. Not just the Bible itself. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, it's a downer. It's not, 
fun to talk about, but you know, we are looking at like a really serious existential situation with famine, you know, with pandemics and all kinds of social upheaval. And I just feel like, wow, at this exact moment that this is looming and in some ways already happening in various places, um, we've kind of like, we've kind of lost our willingness to our, our ability to be truly empathetic with each other at like the most necessary time for it. And right. Well, which is the cause and which is the effect? I mean, right, right. It could be our atomization from one another has made us oblivious to the, the, the challenge that we're facing. Right. No, I think that's absolutely true. And it's also made it easier for people to say, well, yeah, we're going to keep burning fossil fuels and so on. But what worries me now that it seems like we're on a path that to the extent we can mitigate it, I'm not sure, but it's still going to be bad. No matter what we do, I think it's clear it's going to be bad. And then the question is, can we generate the kind of empathy for one another and the sense that we're going through something together that it's actually going to require to maintain our humanity in the face of that? Because imagine, you know, the tragedies you know, I do think it's possible. Sometimes tragic things bring people together. Like I remember being in the city uh, at around 9-11 and how it changed uh, everybody's attitude toward one another and how it suddenly made everybody realize that we were experiencing something together. Had that same experience a little bit during Hurricane Sandy. And I know it's happened happens in other places, despite all the tragedy that, you know, those of us that remain do sort of suddenly wake up and realize, wait, we're all vulnerable and we need to take care of each other. But I do kind of worry that we've lost a lot of that ability and that we need to work really hard to to cultivate it. Sometimes I feel like the opposite effect is taking place though. It's funny, I was just talking today with the guys who are going to be writing the screenplay based on the Survival of the of the richest oh article my God, wow. that I did for you. That you thought up really more than I did. I was doing something else, and then you were like, "You spoke to billionaires about their survival." That's the lead, buddy. Right. You know, it was so funny because that was just a, like at the end of the piece originally. It was like this little add on. Oh, by the way, I once <laughs> met with these people, and you're like, "Dude," and then it ended up. You know, more people read that than all my books combined. But I was talking with the guys who are writing that, and. The, the the thing that they're interested in is more almost the opposite possibility that we are alienating ourselves from one another in preparation for the the self interested gamesmanship that will uh that will be required of a of a walking dead civilization in other words that if as things get really bad when you're going to need to have the strength to not let anybody else into your bomb shelter or into your uh you know uh, your refuge and in order to be able to do that you're going to have to practice kind of not caring about people now <laughs> yeah well i think i certainly think that's one strain uh that's going on in people's minds is well we have to be ready i mean that's clearly the billionaires that you're talked to in that piece that's definitely the approach they're taking but i think the point that you make that's really strong is that well maybe there it's twofold one is that actually being part of a community and being able to support other people is actually a pre 
a prerequisite for being able to survive. Mm-hmm. We have to we have to be able to see each other as part of a, a communal group in order to survive. Nobody really survives on their own. Right. But Nobody that, gets out of here alone. Yeah. Right. I mean, it maybe you're gonna say people will say, well, you know, we'll have our tribe and I know that you you'll have people organize themselves into groups and possibly do battle with each other. But I also think maintaining our dignity and our humanity is also like really important. And it may be that somebody who, you know, holds themselves up in a bunker with armed guards might survive a little bit longer than some of the rest of us. But I don't know that that choice is really worth it if, you know, they're no longer have that humanity that, you know, that we all share. I guess right. we'll find out. I hope, we, <laughs> I hope yeah. we don't find out. But I think we will. I keep wanting to play for people that Twilight Zone where, you know, the people have this bomb shelter and then the alarms go off and they go down and hide in their bomb shelter and all the neighbors are coming and banging saying, please, please let us in. And they won't let them in. And then it turns out to be a false alarm and they come out and everybody just, yeah, everybody <laughs> hates them. Uh, you know, I feel like it's like, that's the lesson. It's almost, uh, uh, I mean, although it's, again, it's self-interested. It's almost like I want people to see, look, what's the best possible outcome of, of behaving in the way that you're behaving? You know, what, what's the best what's the best place that's going to take you, you know, compared to the idea that, you know, rather than preparing for disaster as an individual, if we if we attempt to, to build our resilience as a collective, we can reduce the probability that disaster happens or at least reduce the severity of the disaster or push it further off into the future or increase our ability to cope with it as 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 a collective um it it makes logical sense it's as if people are saying well logically i should just look out for me but no logically you should look out for everybody right well it's also i don't know maybe this sounds crazy, but it's also a matter of shaping the experience into something that um, is meaningful. And hmm. I don't know. I mean, we're all going to die, whether or not it's in a second civil war or due to global warming or natural causes, calmly with, you know, surrounded by our family. Um, and so you, we really are all looking at like a very limited time on Earth and the question I feel like should be, you know, how do you spend that time? Not how do you extend it as long as possible at the cost of everything else um, that you care about? So right. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a sense of scarcity. I think that like this idea that, well, it's me against you and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, you know, that that is a way of looking at the world. Um, it just doesn't, it's not a, it's not a, way of living well uh it's not a way of having a good existence and you know in that in a sense if you take that approach like i don't know you've already given up more than you know i think right it's not about life extension it's more about life expansion right right going sideways i mean and that i mean and that really is the kind of the common thread i think in your work is this, you know, forcing people to at least consider compassion for each one of the subjects that you're engaging with. And and that if, if you can have a moment of compassion, even for a psycho killer, then you should be able to walk down the street and see these other 
uh, beings as as humans as well. Right. I hope so. Yeah. At least it's worth a try. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for uh, for being on Team Human and and sharing uh, your your process and your work with us. It 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 really does mean a lot to me. Thanks. Well, I loved doing it. Uh, it was great. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Medium editor Aaron Gell. You can find his current writing at Medium. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College, where you can apply right now for our new master's program in media and social change. Our associate producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Team Human is produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.